Welcome to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us this week, Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. So I didn't really want to play this song, but Elizabeth kind of insisted. It's actually her ringtone on her her phone. I mean, so when somebody calls her, you start hearing Felix. Because I always choose the music, right, Tom? No, it's a joke. I uh, so we're trying to do. A and little... what do we say about your jokes? <laughs> I think they're. Not I think they're kind of funny. Anyway, so um, what we're doing here is redneck rock and roll. Now I'm talking about stuff that people listened to when I was at Henry Clay High School. It ain't this uh, Neil Young, Stephen Stills, Jimmy Pay. That might have been some people listening to that. But I'm talking about stuff that people were listening to driving around in their cars, their GTO or their 442. And it was stuff like this. You know, in the last hour, we played uh, some Grand Funk Railroad. This is what people would listen to. So, you know, the guy that was the the guitarist on this group was a guy named Felix Papillardi. I think he probably weighed 400 pounds. He was this massive guy. His guitar, I read somewhere, it sounded like he and Joe Walsh maybe knew each other. And he he got influence from other people. I don't know. Did you ever play any of his songs when you were playing? Well, uh, was Leslie West was part of Mountain I'm too, sorry. Right? Papillardi is the drummer or the bassist. It's it's Leslie, Leslie West, West that was the guitar player. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. But he was big. Yeah. He, big, uh, Felix big Papillardi was a little guy who I think played the bass. Okay. It's like Mutt and Jeff. Yeah. Le- Leslie West. Uh, I mean, yeah. It was Leslie him West. And, him and Walsh. Uh, I know. I don't think they ever played together. I've never heard anything to them playing. But, yeah, I mean, he's kind of the – you know, one of the icons, you know, yeah. classic rock icons, if you will. So that would have been someone that sort of influenced you at a tender age. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so what about you, Chad? What did you like to listen to? All kinds of stuff. But <laughs> I, Leonard Skinner, yeah. talking about Southern rock. I mean, Marshall Tucker Band. I mean, you're... Well, that's another Nazareth. genre. Now, that's going to be a different show. I'm talking okay. about what Rednecks in Lexington, Kentucky were listening to. I mean, driving around we, in their Trans Ams yeah. or Camaros, cranking the, up the music with the windows the down? Almond, exactly. Exactly. David, buddy of mine, he, he had a 442, and he said, it'll blow your doors off. And, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty fast. But, all right, we're going to focus on... A guy here who, you know, I got in this business in uh, 1978, which means this year it'll be 45 years. Um, Peter Lynch, I'm going to say he took over the Magellan Fund. 77. Yeah. I didn't realize it was that late. I thought he was involved in the – Early 70s, but no, it says 77. So he took over the Fidelity Magellan Fund. At the tender age of 33. 33 years old. Think about it. During that time, he had the, he managed this fund for 13 years. He averaged 29% a year. Now, what we won't talk about is that the average investor in the Magellan Fund only averaged about 6% a year. Because at the time, Fidelity, 
made it very easy to trade in and out of their funds and somebody would make a little quick hit and then get out. And it was bad. And I think it upset Peter Lynch from what I've read. But during that time, the fund went from $18 million under management to about $14 billion, which was huge. You know, today you got $200 billion funds. But back then, uh, that, was, that was a lot. Now, I would think the greatest contribution that uh, Peter Lynch made to the investment business was not managing the Fidelity Fund, but it was the books he wrote. Uh, one of which was called One Up on Wall Street. And then I think he had another one called uh, Something Else About Wall Street. But in that book, the very first one, he basically espoused a type of investing that the professionals, the big uh, CFA types, no disrespect, uh, would have yes, of course, yeah. because they, you know, kept their jobs by making investing be kind of like a black art. You know, you can't know about it because we're professionals and you're not. Peter Lynch basically said to the average person, invest in things you know about because that's how I do it. And uh, now some of it he didn't because he had, you know, four or 500 stocks in there and there was no way that he could have been doing business with all those companies. He would hear about a company and buy it. Uh, he, I think he, at one point, and, and you could say that the bull market helped him, but he was a shoot now and aim later kind of guy. He admitted he was, first of all, because the fund was growing so fast. Yeah. He had to put money to yep. work. But anyway, I read this article. I'm going to let you kind of hit the highlights on it because both of you, it's really good. Well, Tom, I think that one important distinction to make about how Peter Lynch did it was, I mean, it was very plain uh, common sense approach to investing like you described, but fund managers then and even now, really, I mean, they're they're worried about the quarter, how they're doing for the quarter and uh, will they keep their job if they put a few quarters together that don't don't go so well? And a lot of them don't. So they they live in fear. And they're, it's what they're, you worry about all the time. I mean, I hear you terrified. worry about each quarter's earnings. And it's what I do. I study like, it all day. I mean, so you know, you don't even go home. You keep me in a cave, man. <laughs> Locked up in a cave and and uh, put some food out once a day. It's great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's but, not really true no, by it's the way not. go on but no the the deal is though that these uh, portfolio managers were focused more about being they would rather be wrong with the herd yeah, exactly. than right on that's, their own that's and, exactly right and peter lynch was willing to stand out on his own and and uh, live, live with the live or die with his decisions and he was uh, you know unique that way but he also had some talent and, and made some good investment decisions so that's why he was so exceptional or that was that was the biggest uh uh, characteristic is courage to be different. Well, I remember out. one time he said something that I thought was crazy at the time. <laughs> he said, somebody asked him, how do you learn about a stock? He said, own it. <laughs> That's right. And so he definitely, as this fund got bigger, he was definitely aiming or shooting first and aiming later. Some of that happened. And that's not to say he was an absolute genius. I think the thing that he did that really was genius was write this book. Yeah. Well, and he even says later on, uh, towards the end of the, the interview, uh, he said, I wasn't, it, 
I wasn't right all the time. He said he was right six, maybe six and a half times out of ten. Yeah. Um, and, and that's better than a lot of fund managers are. But that that shows the the uh, importance of long-term growth and compounding. It, your winners can well outshine your losers. Because, um, I mean, what's the ultimate upside on a stock? It's infinite. You know, what's the ultimate downside? Whatever you put into it. That's right. Um, and so, uh, you know, he didn't get everything right, but the ones that he got right, they were really right. Okay. Now, I want to talk about this other thing. He, he compares it to a baseball game. Uh, and I'm going to read a little bit of this. Um, he's talking about McDonald's. He said, I had a big position in McDonald's in the 80s, and the people were saying it's overpriced. Well, they missed the fact that there are 200 countries in the world and McDonald's went overseas and for the next two or three decades kept growing. He says, I'm not re recommending Walmart or McDonald's. He had just spoken about Walmart. He said, but what inning in the ball game are we in? Was McDonald's in the middle innings? Maybe, because they were in every city in the U.S. There wasn't any more room for McDonald's in the U.S., but it was overseas. The same thing happened to Starbucks. You know, there's more Starbucks outside the U.S. now by a lot than there are in the United States. He said, but then there's one thing that can happen. A core piece of the story can change. He said, at one point, Toys R Us went from a great story to a bad story. Same thing with Staples and The Gap. And limited. When the gap and limited were in every single mall in America, where else could they go? Now, I will say I went into a Staples the other day. I'm not even going to describe my experience. It was less than optimal. And it was almost a sense that, you know, the store's open, but we ain't giving you any service. Whereas I went over to Best Buy and they were all over me with service, but they were telling me stuff that wasn't right. But <laughs> at least they were paying attention. Yeah, to they, you. They, they, that that was the thing. They were paying attention. But the the, the point is, pick your poison. Yeah, man. yeah, exactly. So, um, a, on a company, the story can change. What killed Toys R Us? I don't really know, but I think it might have been the internet or something. Yeah. And, uh, but that hadn't killed Walmart. It's well, not, go ahead. Walmart well, started selling a lot of the toys that Toys R Us was selling. So that's a good yeah. point. And it was, they could do it cheaper. Well, look at Sears. I mean, I mean, they, they didn't keep up with the times. They didn't evolve. Uh, no. So, they're, uh, unfortunately, their story didn't change when it, it should didn't. have changed. Neither did Eastman Kodak. Yeah, exactly. They knew about digital. 10 years before everybody else. Yeah. And they failed to embrace it. And so now there really isn't an Eastman Kodak anymore. Right. But, all right, and, and this is another story. This, guys, it's Peter. It's an interview with Peter Lynch that we're reading from. He wrote uh, really a, a definitive book for the average investor called uh, One Up on Wall Street. And then he wrote another one. I can't remember the name of it. It's in here somewhere. Beating the street. Beating the street. Yep. Yeah. All right. Apple. He said, I never bought Apple. He himself. 
He said, Apple's not like a, bi- a biotechnology company. Those are complex. But Apple, it's not a complicated company. It's not even high tech to me. It was early 2000s. The iPod was selling for $225. And let me tell you something. Before the iPod came along, Apple was a one long little specialty computer company. It was on a, it's on its deathbed pretty much, and it took a $100 million investment from Bill Gates just to keep the doors open. Well, it, it had about a $4 billion market cap, and it was barely bumping along. And then the iPod comes out. Mm-hmm. And you, I remember those early ads. It's some girl gyrating around. It's a silhouette. It looks like she's in a strip club or something with, with the iPod thing hooked into her ears. And that was that company changed. It became it went from being a computer company to an iPod company. Then they decided, all right, we're going to go with the iPhone, and and now it's a th- almost a four trillion dollar company. How has not anybody figured out how to make an iPhone or something like that cheaper and cut into their profit margin? But they haven't. Yeah. And not even Jeff Bezos can figure that out. Well, it's Mm -hmm. the ecosystem because they control the software, they control the apps and everything. And Samsung sells more cell phones globally than And they don't make any money at all. Their profit margins are almost it's like nothing. That's what I've got right here. Apple has like ninety six percent of the This kicks the butt off an iPhone. I don't know why anybody uses an iPhone (laughs) if you can have one of these. And I will also add you are the only one in our family. That has doesn't matter. The same Sometimes it's lonely when you're right. Well, it's, you're, <laughs> you're, Just ask Peter Lynch, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You are our Peter Lynch. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so so anyway, I didn't buy Apple either. You know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to lie to you. I rarely do. Um, that's when it blew out, and the iPhone came along. <laughs> By the way, I think it was a $9 stock with yep. no debt and 4 or $5 of share in cash. So you could have certainly argued it was a value stock. We did buy some Apple here at our firm. We bought it when it started paying a dividend, and it was trading for like 15 times earnings. And we thought it looked cheap. And, was, what, and we, you were right. It was right after Steve Jobs died. Yeah, and we're up four times or five times yeah. in what we still got. Mm-hmm. You know, Warren Buffett. He owns over $150 billion in Apple, mm-hmm. and he's still only about a 5% shareholder yeah. at that. So, but, you know, the thing is, this stuff is not complicated, but it's very hard to get sometimes. It is not. People tend to look at it like it's some kind of overly technical thing. And it's not. Well, he even says that, you know, part of it is your brain, but a big part of it's your stomach. You know, how do you handle the emotion and when inevitably things go south? Um, and he uses the example, if you have a stock that starts at 20, goes to 14, then 28, and back to 20. And, you know, the, the, the emotional ride that that is, but he's, he's talking about know the story. And along the way, you had the chance to buy that stock at 14 and have it go back to 20. And if you know 
the store, you know the company, then you have the ability to buy some when it's gone down. Um, and and that gets yeah. that gets into the portfolio. You have the confidence in your um, selection research. research. And you, you have that confidence, right? And that gets into the portfolio management of it too. Um, you know, being able to you know have dry powder to be able to buy something. Um, you know, but knowing the story of each holding in your portfolio, because inevitably you're going to have a bad time in the market at some point. That's right. And that's when you have to fall back on the research and possibly add to it. Um, I want to add a little thing about us is that, because this is an advertisement for Dupree Financial Group. Very, you know, uh, we got to always remember to do that because this is, I mean, quite frankly, we get a lot of business from doing this radio show. So where are we a little different than a Peter Lynch? We're not a pure growth investor. We do the research. We invest in things we know, but we're looking at dividends. And there, there's a reason for that. Our average investor <clears throat> is either closer to or in retirement. They need cash flow coming in off their investments. Therefore, we tend more towards dividends than, than purely growth. And we're investing in companies we understand and know about what they do. But their cash flow is not directed towards necessarily growing the company like some of these others were. It's, it's directed towards paying dividends. What does that do for you, the investor? That helps you pay your bills. You know, most people, and this is crazy, and we, it, we, we run into this even now. I mean, we've been saying this stuff for years. Most people have a nice portfolio invested in growth stocks. We just met with a guy today, 75 years old. He's still in growth. And he's got some bonds, but not much. And they, have, they don't really have a plan for how to derive income from that portfolio without liquidating the principal that if you if your plan is to liquidate principal you better hope the market stays up because once it drops and you're still pulling money out of your principal you're selling shares at a lower price we would prefer to see you take money from the dividends without getting into your principal we right. want you to sell something not for cash uh, to pay your bills, but because you see something you like better and want to inv right. invest in that. You don't want to be forced to sell. Right. That's right. You don't want to be forced to sell because you're doing your monthly distribution and the market's down 10% yeah. month to date or what have you, and you're having to sell at that low point. All right. So is it my turn? All right, let me get some It's always your turn. Oh, Lord. If you'd like to learn more about our dividend-producing portfolio, give us a call, 859-233-0400, or you can go to our website at dupreefinancial.com and schedule an appointment directly on our website. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree <laughs> wait, wait Show. Wait a minute. You've got something else to say, too. I was about to finish. Okay. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show with Mike Johnson, Chad Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree. What about the uh, podcasts and... 
scheduling appointments on the website and stuff like that. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more of the Tom Dupree Show. I just want to make sure they have all the information. My name is Tom Dupree. Without a plan, you're doomed to failure. Many people have no idea how they plan to tap their retirement investments for income during retirement. At Dupree Financial Group, we specialize in retirement investing. That means turning your growth portfolio or your IRA into an income portfolio. You may need to draw on it for a lot of years Come in and let us review your plan and give you some ideas. Call us at 859-233-0400 and set up a complimentary appointment to review your investments. Listen to the Tom Dupree Show at News Radio 630 WLAP and WLAP.com. That's Dupree Financial Group at DupreeFinancial.com. Welcome back to the Tom Dupree Show. Joining us, Mike Johnson, Chet Sturgill, our host, Tom Dupree, and we are powered by Dupree Financial Group. You know, it's hard to... I mean, there there are a lot of bands that came from Jacksonville, Florida. If you've ever been to Jacksonville, it is really not North Florida. It's South Georgia. 
I mean, it really is. So you had Molly Hatchet, which is who this is, Leonard Skinner, and then just go ahead and pot that down. And then there was another group called the Outlaws. Now, this is theoretically Southern rock, but it would not quite be in the same genre as the Allman Brothers. I mean, it's a little bit. It's a little edgier. Yeah, more heavy metal. So play that next one that I sent you. Um, I didn't know there was a next one. There he is. And this was another group that was from Jacksonville that was pretty big when I was in college. We were, there was a lot of what's called Southern rock. The, the, the people, it edged more towards country. What happened? Oh, it's going down. Okay. That's the song. This is by the outlaws, but it's from Jacksonville, Florida again. There, there, so a lot of these people recorded on a record label called Capricorn Records based in Macon, Georgia. That's where the Almond Brothers recorded. So now we've gone from redneck rock to southern rock, which in a sense is slightly different. Because redneck rock, I think of as Detroit. You're splitting hairs. <laughs> Turn that up. This is called Greengrass and High Tides by the Outlaws. It's got a different sort of guitar sound to yeah. it. Sounds a little more like country, like Marshall Tucker or somebody like that. And you know, when do you, where are you going to hear this stuff being played on the radio? There's not very many places. It's kind of in the same vein of, uh, you know, Thin Lizzy. You know, but that's, they're actually an Irish band. Yeah. Uh, Dublin, the Gary Moore, uh, which Gary Moore is a phenomenal guitar player. He does a lot of blues guitar. T- well, he did. He, he passed away. Uh, but he, he had a really uh, successful solo career. Um, Still Got the Blues for You was a great blues album. All right. What do you want to go for now? I want to keep talking about. You want to do this the, the Jordan P- Peterson? Well, Dave I want to hit thing? a couple more points on the, the right. Peter Lynch interview. So do I. This one, this one point, I think it's it's perfect for what's going, what has been going on in the market for the last, you know, definitely since COVID. Um, they they asked him, say, looking back on one up on Wall Street, which is the book, is there anything that you would have changed? And he said, it's bothersome to me that people aren't more careful. Now, the, with the internet, they, don't ha- they didn't have that 35 years ago, and now people look up a refrigerator, airplane tickets, vacations, but then they put $10,000 on some stock that they hear about at a party or on a bus. For some reason, people use this term, they play the market. Such a dangerous verb. I've been doing that, saying that forever. I remember my good friend Johnny comes up to me uh, in... Uh, a clothing store years ago says, what are you playing in the market? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in the bond business. He said, what are you playing? He said, I'm playing Humana. And you know, that means he's buying and selling, not really investing. And, right. uh, and Peter Lynch is right. That's what people do a yeah. lot. And he said, 
he wrote, and the brokerage firms love it because that's how absolutely. you generate all the commissions. Absolutely. And he said that's why he wrote one up on Wall Street to help people that wanted to do investing, not trading, not speculating, not gambling. Um, but he goes on to talk about, you know, with information that flows as quickly as it does now uh, with low, low to no transaction fees, um, that right. you know, the gambling mindset, uh, it's, it's kind of taken over, uh, with, with a lot of people. And it really got and bad during COVID it, horrible because uh, of people trading their own accounts. Right. On, and then the smaller traders, and then you had the people on Reddit yeah. and, uh, they were trading, well, you know, little thousand dollar pieces of the different stocks on Robin hood. That's right. And and, and there, there's there's more companies out there and ways or in and things to buy, uh, quote unquote, invest in companies to buy to speculate on. He he, he said he used the analogy used to you when you you bet on a a basketball game you bet on the winner or the loser. Now you bet on does this person make the free throw? You know, there's there's a yeah, lot all more the ways, side bets, all side, the side bets, bets, ways to speculate. Right. Well, and. As far as the extra trading or the increase in trading is something people need to keep in mind. Even when you have no commission or very low commission, there's still slippage Didn't involved, ask. which is exactly as Tom said. You know, the the buyer and the seller have to come to together to agree on a price, and uh, you're generally going to get skinned a little bit on that, even if you're uh, trading it for no commission. The way those companies can do it, the the providers, is they mark up the 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 price of the of the shares for you. I mean, it might be a tiny amount, but they do it enough. They can make a good living doing that. So, I mean, it there's no free lunch, and the more you trade, the more you're you're losing in trading cost. If you happen to make some money on it, you're going to pay taxes too, and it's going to be ordinary income when you're doing the short term exactly trading right. like that. So we care about what you keep, not how much you make or lose. Good point. Really. And taxes are a big part of that. But uh, the less you trade, the better decisions you make on the purchases that you make, the less you, uh, the less expensive it's going to be uh, for those transactions, for taxes and everything else. But something I wanted to, to touch on uh, as well is Peter said in, in uh, parting thoughts, he said, even if something it looks good, you have to say, can the company make money? Are they making money? And then he uh, later in the paragraph says, some people have said to me, I listened to you, walked into the store and buy and bought it that day. He says, well, I never said that. He said, it's the start of the exercise. And that's what we do here at Dupree Financial Group. We find something interesting. We go deeper. We don't, we don't just say, well, they, they sell a product that we like, so we're going to buy it. We look at, hey, if, are they making money? I mean, do they have some growth opportunities? I mean, what what about it looks attractive? Is it a long-term? Do they have a long-term competitive advantage? I mean, there are a lot of questions we ask. But Tom talks about dividends. We care about cash flow as well, and that's really the big driver because if you don't have positive and growing cash flow, or at least sustainable cash flow, you're not going to have dividends for long. Here's the other thing. If you buy an investment, could be a stock, bond, whatever, a bond will produce interest, a stock will produce dividends. But they're similar. Well, in if you're hold on, if you're getting the cash flow from the dividends or the interest, you can be wrong for a while. You're just and you're getting paid to wait because you're getting something in return for owning it. And and I'm going to go back on this because I never assume that people really understand what I'm talking about. Dividends 
are separate from the value of the investment. So some people think I bought the stock at $32 and it went to 36. The $3 or the $4 that I made is a dividend. I've actually heard people say that before. Don't feel stupid if you thought that. My mother took silver dollars and put them in a savings account at the bank, thinking those same silver dollars would be there when we came back to get them. So people do all kinds of things. And she was not a stupid person. She just didn't know banking very well. The, the, the point that I'm making is a dividend is a separate thing from the price of the investment. Dividends get paid to you because you own the investment. They are on top of the investment. The Cajun people call it a lanyap. It's like an extra. It's something extra. But you're getting paid because you own it. it. has nothing to do with the price of the stock or the bond going up or down. It is separate. So sometimes you might buy something at 35 bucks. It drops to 30 but you're getting, I don't know, $2 a share in dividend a year, you're still going to get those dividends. may take you a while to get back to your purchase price in terms of the market going back up, but you could get it back in terms of dividends. So then it might go to $40. You don't know. Well, in that same vein, the same principle applied to mutual funds. You know, mutual funds, they might do a distribution at the end of the year, and you think, well, it's a dividend payment. Not well, always. It, it, it be, it's capital gain distribution. You know, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes it is dividends, but within that fund, there are, from the buys and sells, redemptions, decisions that management makes, there are embedded tax consequences that are passed through. So you might have a capital right. gain distribution at the end of a year. Uh, but when you're, especially when you're in retirement or taking distributions, you, you have to know that that's not necessarily just from dividends of the stocks within that fund, because you need to be concerned with the consistency of that. That capital gain distribution is, is going to change depending on buys and sells within the fund. So a mutual fund is a group of stocks and bonds and investments. Some of them might have as many as 600 different investments in there. During the year, they will buy and sell within that portfolio. And they're going to incur losses, and sometimes they're going to incur gains. If their gains are greater than their losses, they have to pay. They can't keep that money in the fund, the, the gain money. They've got to pay it out at the end of the year. Some of it's going to be short-term. Some of it's going to be long-term. Those two things will get taxed differently, but they have to pass them through to you. Do not confuse that with a dividend. That's actually a return of part of your principal. And hate to say it, guys, some of it's taxable. You can buy a mutual fund on Friday and get a capital gains distribution the next Friday, and that's going to be you're going to get taxed on gains that you never made yeah. because you were in that fund 
after the gains had already been taken. When you buy shares or units of a mutual fund, you are buying the existing cost basis on all those positions that was you don't establish a new one. So if they've owned a big chunk of Apple for 20 years and they've got a thousand percent gain and then they decide to sell some of it you get hit with the tax bill even though you didn't get the thousand percent gain but if you're in it if it's inside of an ira correct you don't have to worry about it because you won't get taxed on that until you start taking the money out of the ira if it's outside of an ira it can be very very painful and now there's analytical services out there that will show you how much of an embedded capital gain there is in a mutual fund before you buy it. Right, right. But One thing I want to come back to, though, uh, Peter Lynch, when, uh, just to, to continue on that, that uh, thought about when you see a, so a store or business or company that you like that you buy the stock, he said, that's not what I said. That's the start of the process. He says... That's when you go do the work, see if it makes money, et cetera. But what he also said uh, was that it, basically you need to have three or four bullet points. They don't even have to be complete sentences, but three or four bullet points on why you own that company. But he also said you're not done. You have to monitor the stock, which is why we follow earnings calls. We follow earnings announcements to make sure that the management's doing what they said they're going to do. And if there's a problem, we get an explanation, and if it doesn't pass the smell test, then we move on and find something else. But it's uh, it's a critical part. I mean, there. Tom mentioned some of the names: Eastman Kodak. I mean, Polaroid's another example. There are multiple members of the Nifty Fifty stocks from the seventies uh, that that you know biggest companies. I mean, the WalMarts of their day that don't exist anymore. We talked about Sears already. Uh, they they are no longer in business. So I mean, oh, you can't just take your eye of off the ball. I mean, you had Woolworths, you had mm-hmm. Kreskies. I mean, these are. Lexington Main Street had all these department stores up and down here. And let me tell you something. When I was a little kid, can you believe I was actually a little kid at one point? Um, You look at pictures of Lexington from the 40s and 50s. Son, it was like Fifth Avenue on Manhattan in Manhattan out here. I mean, women walking up, they had gloves. They'd go out. To go out shopping, women wore gloves and hats. And they the downtown Lexington uh, sidewalks were full. By the time I got down there in the late 60s, early 70s, it was more winos. <laughs> and, uh, you know, today now it's even different from that. But um, the shopping went on downtown. That's how it was. Yeah. Woolworths, people go down to Woolworths and sit down at the, they had the longest soda fountain, I think, in North America at this Woolworths down here. I mean, it went on for huh. 125 feet or longer. And uh, you could go in there and eat, and I don't know why. You could get everything downtown. There was all no of that stuff, anything. Every, that whole way of doing business is gone. Mm-hmm. It ain't coming back. Lexington had a beautiful train station that they tore down. That Unbelievable. Was on Street. I mean, it didn't, didn't save it to repurpose it, to turn it into some other uh, use or, or find another use for it. They just tore it down. I was just down in Corinth, Mississippi, at my where my mother grew up last weekend. The Illinois Central Railroad Station was built in that old bungalow style with the overhanging eaves. 
And and the, it, it by the time I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, that station wasn't being used very much. So this is late 60s. You, know, you had a couple of passenger trains that came through there, but it was starting to go down. Those are gone now. There's no trace of them. They got a couple of trailers up there. It isn't even a train station anymore. Uh, it's a whole thing, that, a way of life that's that's changed. If you don't follow that when you're investing money and see that the changes are starting to take place, you're going to get your you know what handed to you because you better follow mm-hmm. what's going on. Well, his his point there on, you know, three bullet points for each holding in the portfolio. We're talking about Peter Lynch. Peter Lynch. Um, that's a, actually a really good exercise and kind of a flashlight that you can you as an investor uh, can use, um, you know, do you know what you own and more importantly why you own it? Um can if you don't, can you ask someone to explain it to you why you own it? And right. and here's here's the thing, not just what you own. That's that's an easy one. Here here's what it is. This is this is a international fund or whatever it may be. Why do you own it? There should be a good two or three reasons. It could be real simple. Why? But why do you own it? And that's a question that you should be able to get answered clearly and concisely. I mean, we had a guy in here just earlier today and he's got a good sized account and it, it, it was with a guy that he was saying doesn't explain things to him. That's, I don't get that. How would you not, unless you yourself didn't understand it, you, the broker or the, the, the investment advisor, if you don't understand it, you cannot explain it to someone else. Mm-hmm. What we've tried to do here, and we don't do it perfectly, but we try very hard and we do it, try to do it every day. We have tried to understand very fully the things that we're invested in. We're, we're not embarrassed to ask questions, go to meetings uh, with people. In one case, one of our companies, the guy spent three hours with us. The CEO spent three hours with us. Yeah, uh, we, we went on a road trip, Washington, D.C. area, three hours. So there are people out there who will tell you stuff. All right, we got to wrap it you, up. You've got, well, hold on. You have got to ask questions. If you don't ask questions, it's on you. And when you're talking about your investments, there are no stupid questions. Nothing you've heard on the show is a recommendation to buy or sell. Please consult a professional. You've been listening to the Tom Dupree Show. If you'd like to learn more about our dividend-producing portfolio, please give us a call, 859-233-0400. We appreciate you listening to the Financial Hour.